Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the sanitation podcast. My name's Pete and I'll be your host. When I began Get Flushed, my focus was entirely on the portable sanitation industry. You see, I spent time working as a restroom operator and I wasn't terribly impressed by the standard or the cleanliness of the portable restrooms that we supplied. As the first series grew and I discovered more and more about what goes on after portable toilets have been emptied and cleaned, I realised that a lack of access to proper sanitation is one of the biggest social and environmental challenges facing the world today. And by proper sanitation, I mean clean running water, safe toilets and the ability to transfer and treat septic waste in an environmentally friendly and sustainable way. One of the key moments for me in Series 1 was my conversation with Jack Sim, the founder of the World Toilet Organisation, which I released in time for World Toilet Day on November the 16th last year. Jack had a significant effect on my thinking and awareness of what I'll call the wider sanitation debate. Much of that is driven by the fact that so many people in the world live without proper access to running water, proper sewers or safe sanitation. As this journey has unfolded, I've been fortunate enough to meet lots of really inspiring business owners, workers, scientists, advocates and researchers who share my interest and passion for all things sanitation. And one of the best ways I've found to expand that circle, and thus my own knowledge, is through social media. My interview with this week's guest came through an initial contact through Twitter. Chelsea Wald is an award-winning science and environmental writer from the US who's now based in the Netherlands. She's written and released a book called Pipe Dreams, The Global Quest to Transform the Toilet. The blurb for the book says that Pipe Dreams daringly profiles the growing army of scientists, engineers, philanthropists, entrepreneurs and activists worldwide who are overcoming their aversions and focusing their formidable skills on making toilets accessible and healthier for all. Pipe Dreams is published by Avid Reader Press, an imprint of the US publisher Simon & Schuster, and it's been out in the United States and Canada for a couple of weeks. I reached out to Chelsea through Twitter and I'm happy to let you know that she agreed to appear on the show. We caught up by Google Meet last week. Chelsea, I was really pleased when you replied to my tweet. Well, my pleasure. You know, Twitter's for everybody. My interviews normally are very um, relaxed and free-flowing. I have watched your interview with Peter Boyd on the Westport. Oh, yeah. Thanks for watching. And I've got to say, did you just talk freely or did you have notes? We had a shared outline that we were working from. It wasn't it wasn't completely free. Sometimes I'm more fluent than others, unfortunately. But that one went nice. You were going to compliment me on that. I was. Yeah. Thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) How long have you been over in the Netherlands? I've been here since 2016. And before that, I was six years in Austria, but I'm from the US. And what made you go to Europe? Well, it's sort of a lifestyle choice, but what's really enabled it is that my husband's worked for a series of organizations that allow us to move around. So I I suppose if we start at the start, Chelsea, how does an an American girl living in The Hague come to write a book about toilets? (laughs) It's still a surprise to me. I am a science and environmental journalist. I studied astronomy, of all things, in college. And then I got a master's in journalism with the idea of of writing about science because I like learning about new things all the time. So, you know, scientists have to go really deep into one topic, but I get to kind of dabble in, in a variety of topics. And I did that for many, many years until 2013 when I started writing about toilets. 
I had two assignments just by chance. I didn't come up with these ideas. The editors sent them my way. One was a story about innovations for low-resource contexts, places where people don't have toilets or have very poor toilets, um, where there's a really desperate need for sanitation. And another was about a totally different context, cities, high-income cities, where there's a need for heat and um, low-carbon forms of energy. One of the places where people are looking for heat is in sewers because we put a lot of heat down in our sewers with our hot water from showers and dishwashers and so forth. So there's a, there's a whole concept to draw heat out of the sewers and into buildings through heat pumps. Um, usually those are put into the ground, ground source heat pumps, but you can actually use raw sewage or treated sewage for that as well. In writing those stories, I started to make a connection and started to think about these systems, these sanitation systems that are essential in human existence, in every human society, community. Everybody poops, right? As you know. <laughs> and I started to look more deeply into various aspects of these systems. And I started to realize that there's a lot of innovation happening yeah. in these areas. And over the years, I just decided there was so much material there that it deserved a book. And that's why I wrote a book about toilets. What did the publisher say when you pitched that first off then? Oh. Or did you write it first and then pitch it? You wouldn't believe it. So I spent a really long time writing the pitch. So writing a, a book proposal is very intensive and it's a lonely process. So it's a very big document. Yeah. And I had to write a sample chapter. I put it together with the help of my husband. We took a lot of long walks and talked about the structure and I thought maybe I'd write a history of toilets, but then I couldn't really come up with a narrative there because their history of toilets isn't very linear. So then I finally came up with this idea that I would write about the future of toilets. Of course, when you write about the future, you also have to write about the past and the present. So it was all going to be in there, but the future was going to be the focus. I got the proposal done. Like It was like the day I was going to give birth to my child, <laughs> which is funny. I had this deadline, and so I, I just urgently got it done to the deadline, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to take some time off. I, I want to take some time off to be with my child, but it's nice to have something in the works, you know? So I, I thought of it as, you know, I'd push this boulder up the hill, and then I would sort of be in a place that I could let it roll down while I was distracted with my child. Pick it up when you were ready. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and so I sent it off to agents just as, like, on my due date. Yeah. But what was amazing was the reaction was so positive to this. First of all, I got an agent on the first day I sent it out, the first agent I sent it to. And so she was so excited about it and she saw how important it was and also how appealing it would be and also how there's very little on the market. And I think for an agent or a publisher, it's unusual for them to come across a book idea that is unique, <laughs> you know, where you can really say, there's kind of nothing out there like this. Yeah, I'm a great fan of Rose George's book, The Big Necessity. Right, and her and her book is fantastic. And if you would believe it, it's like 10 years old. So there was plenty to update. And I took a slightly different approach in the sense that she does this amazing survey of world cultures and sanitation and, and my focus on the future. She does talk a lot about that. My focus on the future is a little bit of a different angle, I would say. I think you've moved the debate on. As you say, it's 10 years since Rose published her book. 
just doing the podcast in the last year, I, I started just focusing on portable restroom operators. And then we've broadened it. And working with Marcel, the plan this year was to finish the portable bit and then expand into the sanitation debate. And it was really Jack Sim who woke me up. I had a real epiphany when I interviewed Jack because he, he made the point that portable restrooms in the West are a convenience. You use them because it, it's helpful for the event or it's helpful for construction. But of course, in a lot of places in the world, they're an absolute necessity. They're the only option in many places. And many places don't even have that luxury. Yeah, I mean, portable sanitation is filling in the gaps. I mean, we've even seen open defecation in places in the world this year yeah. that we hadn't, yeah. that was less common. At least in the U.S., the unhoused population has to rely on portable sanitation very often. It's definitely a growing crisis and one that I think Jack's done an awful lot to wake people up to those issues. Yes. And, and put the sanitation agenda on the table. He really has. Yeah, he's really he's yeah. really um, been a leader in that regard. And I think he, he had a, a lot to do with the creation of World Toilet Day, which is now a staple. He did. And I sent him a message through the World Toilet Organization and he replied within two minutes and said, hey, I'm available. Ring me at 11 o'clock tonight and I'll talk on the podcast, <laughs> which just blew me away. He's, and he's such a gentleman. The one thing you've got in common, I think, watching you interview with Peter Boyd is that you use humor quite well during the book. And that's Jack's big thing, that he, he encourages people to laugh about the subject because otherwise they don't talk about it. Yeah, I agree with him on that. I mean, I think it's fun to laugh, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so much is serious these days, and it is a very serious topic, but it's it's nice to laugh. And, you know, we have some mental barriers to break through when it comes to talking about toilets. And so if you can get people to laugh, it sort of breaks the tension. Without a doubt. And when you were doing your research and, and then putting the book together, did you find people warmed to the idea of talking about sanitation quickly or did it take a lot of pre-work with each of the the people you spoke to well i mostly spoke to innovators in this area so they were quite used to it and passionate yeah very passionate some of them live in a world where they're surrounded by toilet innovators and some of them feel more like they're out on their own in their in their own world. Like the entrepreneur Vic Kashyap I spoke to, who's developing a new medical toilet for senior living centers. So he's the only person developing this technology at the moment on the market for senior living centers. So he lives in a world in which he's doing something a bit weird. People are developing all kinds of technologies for these centers, but he's the one who's doing toilets. He kind of is like a little bit more out on a limb in this regard. But um, a lot of the people I talk to are based in, in university departments that are all about, you know, water and sanitation. They have their own vocabulary and they like to make jokes as well. I joined with the Susanna Forum, the Sustainable Sanitation Forum, and I got into a huge argument with the lady because I used the word portable sanitation. Oh. In our world, everybody refers to the industry as a portable sanitation industry. And she got very upset with me. Can you tell me more about what she was upset about? And I can tell you, there is a lot of debate about terms in this community, which I, I, I have, you know, I don't know if it's very helpful. She made the point very firmly with me that sanitation itself was not portable and that I should only use the word portable toilets. And I tried to counter back and say, but the whole industry is called the portable sanitation industry. 
my call on it was there's a real big gulf between the academic terminology and the vernacular terminology on the ground amongst the people who are actually out there providing the service. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the problems is that there really isn't good vocabulary. There, we don't have great words in the English language for this. Rose George does write very eloquently about this as well. But um, sanitation, for example, in New York, the Department of Sanitation is the one that takes care of the trash, not the poop. So sanitation is a very fuzzy word. And then experts for pee and poop want to use excreta. So excrement is the poop, but excreta is the pee and the poop. But that is just a technical word. I mean, most people have never heard of excreta and wouldn't know what you're talking about. And trying to introduce that into the general public vocabulary doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Waste, I don't like. I mean, human waste. I just saw a big debate about this among the experts. I also don't like it because maybe because I think we shouldn't waste it. You know, when we think about when we talk about human waste, then we start to think about our toilets as trash cans instead of the other things that they can be. And, you know, you start to just throw anything down there as well, which is a problem you must deal with. I use the term septic waste. Septic waste. That's my go to phrase. Um, but I use wheeze and poos quite a lot. Wheeze and poos. That's that's nice. Yeah, we don't say wheeze in in the US, and I like it. Yeah, yeah, I say pee and poop. I don't use the S word. I've never used the S word in the show. So experts use the S word as a kind of term of art, but personally, I think that it's too vulgar for most people. Even the word toilet is kind of almost vulgar for people. You know, we use all these euphemisms for it. I prefer to just say toilet, and in fact. In my book, I, I had a hard time deciding what term to use because I, I don't just write about toilets, right? I write about the toilets and the systems they're connected to. So I call them toilet systems in my book. But I think that's kind of something that I've coined in a way because, of course, they're called sanitation systems or sewer systems or you know sewage systems or septic systems or whatever they're called. Toilet systems isn't, isn't, uh, isn't something in, in wide circulation. I think it's really good that you've talked about that because there's a lot that goes on beyond the porcelain. Yeah. It's not just in the cubicle, is it, or in the bathroom. It's, it's everything that goes beyond that. And I interviewed the wastewater management team at our local council, and they recover the methane from their site yeah. and use that to power their building. The, the, all of the civic buildings are heated and the hot water is produced by that methane. Great. And then they dry the solids into a pellet form that's sanitized, which is then used for remediation for landfill. Yeah, exactly. And that sounds like a pretty typical setup for a reasonably well-funded wastewater treatment plant. And that's the issue, isn't it? That in a well-funded economy, that happens. But in a poorer economy, without any infrastructural development, that, that definitely doesn't happen. Well, it's not that common in the U.S. Um, a lot of small wastewater treatment plants don't do this anaerobic digestion that's needed for the biogas recovery, and they um, just landfill their biosolids or incinerate it, or they will send it to, if they can monitor it, set up a monitoring program so that it meets the EPA regulations, they can send it to farms or, or other places that will use it as a kind of fertilizer. There's still a lot of chemicals used in our industry. There's a lot of formaldehyde still being used in the US, which causes all sorts of problems when it goes back into the environment. Yeah, well, that is one of the debates about these biosolids, um, which is, do we really know what's in them and whether it's safe to disperse them again back into the environment? I don't know if 
where you are, that's that's allowed, or whether it's really the landfill remediation, that's one of the allowed uses. It's interesting because we're living on the road and traveling around in the caravan. We we met a lady a couple of weeks ago who's got a composting toilet in her caravan, and I've never seen I've seen composting toilets in outback, um, very remote dunnies, but she's got one actually in a caravan. And, it, and it's a, a very elegant and attractive visual thing. But the bottom line is she collects her waste. She's got a urine diversion system, but she collects the solid waste, ties it in a bag. And the bag is a biodegradable bag that she then leaves on a composter. And it, over the course of the next year, it breaks down into a sterile loam is, is the best way I can describe it. But there aren't many places she can take that. No, and what I discovered, I don't write that much about this kind of one-off compost toilet in my book, but what I discovered is that a lot of people who use compost toilets in these settings, like on boats or in caravans or other kinds of settings, they will take the contents of that toilet and they'll throw it in a trash can. Just a refuse. Yeah, they just throw it away. She did tell me that that was one of the problems that um, when she's on the road and not near her compost pile, that's all she can do is to yeah. tie it up and put it into the, the nearest rubbish bin or skip, which is a real shame because it kind of defeats the object. Yeah, it saves water. Oh, true. It still gets to be called a compost toilet, even if you're not composting, which I think is another kind of confusing term. Yeah. But I did um, visit a project, which is a kind of growing concept, not just this project, but around the world in low resource settings called container-based sanitation, which is a serviced compost toilet. So people um, have a, a kind of compost toilet, a con container at home that's provided. Is that the Luwatt system? Luwatt system is a, a container-based system as well. I visited the soil program in Haiti. Uh-huh. And there's, there's several other. They're, those are all part of the Container-Based Sanitation Alliance, which is an organization that yeah. has brought together these projects and they advocate for low-resource contexts, especially urban settings where people really have poor toilets. They live in informal areas that don't have really much infrastructure at all, not just sanitation infrastructure, but running water or yeah, any, anything that you would be used to. And so they collect the containers and then take them to a centralized place. And this provides jobs and it means that people don't have to handle their poop themselves. And did you see what happened to the waste at the central depot? In this case, um, they compost it, which is great in Haiti because Haiti's soils are very depleted. So they could really use this compost. But I really think, you know, there's a lot of different options for what you can do with it. And there's a lot of experimentation being done on what you can do with it. Yeah. One of the things that's important to recognize is that with all these options, that there's no one best way. It really depends on the resources that, you know, if Haiti needs compost, that's great. But it might be that they can sell uh, something else at a higher price that then could help them pay for their service as well. So that's a problem. Yeah. The compost isn't very valuable on the market even though it's valuable for the soil, <laughs> it's valuable for the land. It's not a high monetary value to it. Right. So if they can turn it into a fuel or, or a, a protein source that's got a higher value on the market, that might be something that they would prefer to do. That's a real um, catch-22 situation because producing compost is actually low-tech and low-cost, isn't it? That you, it, It's time, essentially. Yes, and space. 
Whereas some of the other, like the thing I saw in Christchurch where they, where they were producing pellets, they had a huge industrial kiln and all of the solids were, were warmed to the point that they became desiccated, really. And then, of course, you need a machine to turn that into a pellet. Yes. So that I saw a pelletizing plant in Boston. It sounds very similar. Those are different because it comes through the sewer. So as we talked about, it's not just poo, right? Which is yeah. which it is. In in Haiti, it's poop and then the cover material, which is usually a gas, which is a byproduct of sugar cane. Am I right about that? So that's the dry material like sawdust, really. Could be they, sawdust, they depending on top. what they have access to. Yeah. But when it comes through a sewer, it's got other stuff in it as well, including water. And then they have to put all this energy into it to take the water back out. Yeah. It's just not ideal. Of course... It's not like, you know, in Boston, they're going to start going door to door again to collect poop like they did in the old days. They were still doing that in parts of New Zealand in the mid-1980s. There was a night cart man. Also in the Netherlands, there was a place they were still doing that, um, the poop tunnel. Because <laughs> I, I, I started the podcast and one of my friends rang me and he said, oh, mate, my granddad was the last night cart man in New Zealand <laughs> and he was still working in the mid-80s. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and that's when it was considered to be unsanitary, but it's it's sort of it's interesting and ironic that it's kind of coming back into fashion, but most of our cities now have locked themselves into this other, you know, into the sewer technology and um we're not going to escape it anytime soon. So much has been invested in that. And it's it's very convenient and it's clean and you know, people people like it. So so it's not going anywhere. Here in New Zealand, we've had lots of earthquakes over the last 10 years, and the, yeah. the sewer system in Christchurch took a massive hit. Oh, I and, imagine. And the, they've replaced it with a, a revised sewer system with pump stations every kilometre or so. They've put a lot of money into it. But the knock-on effect of that is that we've now had massive urban sprawl because we've got a brand-new sewer system that can cope with 10, 20, 30 times more residential properties than before. And we've we've just experienced the housing boom, which for me has been fueled primarily by the response to, or the build of new sewers after the earthquakes. Oh, that's really fascinating. That also seems to be the story of of road building um, in a lot of cities. So they widen the ro- roads to um, lighten traffic, but then all that does is encourage people to move Attracts farther out traffic. into the cities and build more suburbs, and then yeah. you just have the same problem over again. That is really fascinating. In the U.S., mostly what happens is um, these suburbs just are on septic. Yeah, and they need to be pumped, and people don't have them pumped, and there's a whole other story on <laughs> to, to explore there. Yeah, about a fifth of of the of American household use on-site sanitation. Septic. Yeah, like septic and just really an unknown number of those are, are failing or poorly maintained or need to be replaced. And it's a big environmental and health problem. It's funny. That's where my interest in sanitation began, because my parents had a property in the late 80s, which was on septic tank and it didn't work. Yeah. And my dad ended up spending thousands of dollars to be connected to the main sewer. We had a pump system installed. Mm. And, and I just had this fascination with it from, from then, and that's matured into a podcast now. It's just a random It has story. to start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. When you, when you got that first assignment to talk about toilets, what did, did you think about turning it down or was it? Oh, no, I was very excited about it, I have to say. <laughs> I, I was keen to learn more. I mean, I was always interested in development, reporting, and 
what happened was I was just really overwhelmed by it. And I think that's kind of what sparked all of this. The story, the story actually started out, um, this is, this is the sort of bigger story, but it started out as a, as a very general kind of assignment. Some editors write you and they say, you know, I want you to write this very specific story with a specific angle. And others go like, hey, could you look into X topic for me and tell me what you find? And this was more like that second story. And so it did turn into a story about innovations for low resource context, but I did just the general digging around and I was so overwhelmed by what I learned about the toilet and about how problematic it was. And I thought, I guess I had sort of just thought it was like, okay, toilets waste water. What a bummer. That was really all I kind of knew about it. But otherwise, they're, they're fantastic. And then I, I realized they're just much more complicated than that. And I actually came to think of like the toilet as a, this is sort of funny. This was at the time, this isn't my current thinking, but I, I came to think of the toilet as sort of an invasive species <laughs> that was just multiplying alongside our species, you know, and that we just, we just, I don't know, we had lost control of this system. <laughs> I don't know. Being overtaken by the invaders. <laughs> yeah, we were being overtaken by our toilets. I don't know. Yeah. I just had all of these sort of thoughts about it and that's why I wanted to explore it so much more after that. It's cool. I mean Marcel's <laughs> developed a really revolutionary system with the vacuum flush and it and it's a, a modular system that you can collapse it down which reduces the footprint for transport. But the, there are so many new innovations coming onto the market that it, it's one of the most fundamental industries. It, it's dealing with a basic bodily function. Did you get to Japan? So I've been to Japan but not for this book. I did not approach this book in a geographical way. Yeah. That is one way to look at the sanitation, but I have been to Japan. Jack told me that they've developed a model now that will take a stool sample and measure your urine for diabetes, for high sugar levels. Are you talking about the, the totos? Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I know about is they have a toilet for hospital settings that can do some of these things. I tried to contact them actually, and they were like, we are not going to tell you anything about what's coming down the pike, like, because, you know, that's our secret, of course. It's really secretive. But yeah, so you can do that. <laughs> well, Jack was a bit more loose tongue, but he was telling me that that... that <laughs> well, they probably tell him it. stuff that they wouldn't tell me. Yeah, but he said it's, it's definitely happening. And, and you think yes. that's just such a broad spectrum it, it's a, it's the same thing. You you go to the the, the toilet on it. It's a it's a restroom, a, a WC, and at, at one hand we've got people squatting in fields, and at the other end of the spectrum we've got people being medically screened at, at the point that they sit down. It's just such a bizarre spectrum. I agree with you entirely. It is a it's it's hard to get your mind around that, and then also these very luxurious toilets with warm toilet seats and music and yeah and all of this stuff you know that may or may not catch on outside of Japan and and surrounding countries but I think it is very interesting some of its culture you know I think there's going to be places that would never and won't want that kind of toilet um, even if they could afford it Oh, absolutely. And there's a really big divide because there's um, parts of the world that will only use paper and parts of the world that would never use paper. And Rose talks about that in her book. Exactly. Yeah. Here we, we've seen over the last few years, we've had a lot of migrant workers come over to help with the rebuild from post-earthquake. And mm. um, one of the things that the Filipino workers particularly have asked for is squat toilets, which just have never been a thing in New Zealand. Yeah. These are just the cultural aspects. And then there's pros and 
cons of each, I think. Ultimately, it's it's culture. I think it's interesting to learn about. And it's also interesting to to give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, see if you like it, you know, you can maybe learn something about other people by the toilet habits, understanding their toilet habits and, and respecting yeah. them, you know, respect someone's toilet habits and you respect yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So having published the book then, at some point we need you to say where people can get hold of a copy of the book or find out more about Chelsea. Yeah. But um, I'd like to ask you, what do you think the future holds for the sanitation debate and the sanitation conversation? Well, what I hope is that people will start to ask more of their toilets. So we'll start to ask how their toilets could be healthier or give them a new understanding of health, either the toilet itself by, you know, taking a sample or in our sewers, as we've seen that there's health information in sewers that can contribute to public health. And then they can ask their toilets to be more sustainable, not just in terms of water, but water is important. Um, But in terms of thinking of your pee and your poo as a resource, instead of as a pollutant, which it often is, in fact. And then finally to think about how toilets can be more equitable and that's really important and i think it's tied up in the first two as well yeah what the pandemic has brought to the fore is that as a species we're connected what happens in another part of the world isn't gonna stay over there no it'll affect us all yeah it will affect us all and when people don't have toilets or they don't have or if their pee and poo aren't properly treated, that's that's a problem for everybody. And it's something that we need to be concerned about and we need to advocate for. And then I think it's also brought to the fore inequalities in our own communities. Certainly in the U.S., where I'm from, that's the case. And inequalities in sewage as well. You know, toilets aren't all created equal. And unfortunately, you can tell someone's social and economic status very often by the toilet that they use or the toilet system that they use. And um, that's not right. So everyone deserves a a high, very high level of, of sanitation. And we should be demanding that. Those three things are issues I hope will get some more debate and conversation going and that people will really look to to toilets as a a way of helping to solve um, some of these larger problems that we're going to face into the next century. I hope so. And and Jack, Sim, I keep going back to him, but he made that point really clearly when I spoke to him that he links the development of Singapore as a modern economy very much to the improvement of the sanitation system in, in Singapore. And he was very clear that that was the mission. And he's still, he's talking yeah. at the minute about the toilets in the Hawker districts because they're, they're about as bad as they get, he says. And it, his mission at the moment is to improve the Hawker toilets for the communities there. Yeah, I think this is, this is something that you can, the toilet is such an intimate object, right? You have a very intimate relationship with your toilet. Yeah. You can think of it in that kind of small, intimate way. And then you can zoom out and you can look at it on like a large global scale. And that's one of the really interesting things about this topic. You have every scale in between. You have neighborhood scale, you have your city scale, you have your country scale. There's so much to learn and to know and to work on at all of those scales. So many angles to explore as well. So many. 
I spoke to somebody in Australia a few months ago and he was described to me a worm-based sanitation system. So it's a septic tank for a residential development of over 100 houses. But the, it's, it's not a biosystem as such. It's a worm-based system. Yeah. So they divert the liquid and the worms munch their way through the solids. Who would have thought? Yeah, this is something I've also seen that that's proliferating. So, yeah, so the, there's just a lot more creatures being invited to the feast <laughs> as well. <laughs> the other point I'd like to make is that currently we have a single gold standard for sanitation, which is the toilet attached to the sewer attached to the centralized treatment plant. I'm not using gold standard as my own term. This is a term of art used in the field. And this is something that every city aspires to, whether or not they have it. And many, many, many do not have it. And we don't question it. I think that we need lots of gold standards. We need to develop a lot of technologies that will be suited for different environments, different contexts, you know, different cultures. We already talked about culture, different resources that are available and resources that are needed. This gold standard that we currently have requires a lot of energy. It requires, you know, a constant source of energy. A lot of cities don't have constant energy. They have, you know, intermittent energy. This gold standard needs a constant supply of certain chemicals in a lot of cases. A lot of places can't get that regular supply of chemicals. It it needs high level of expertise, which a lot of places don't have the training programs for that kind of expertise. It's not appropriate for everywhere, and it doesn't need to be. We can develop other systems that are more suitable for a lot of different environments. We're seeing in our capital city in Wellington, the sewer system was put in in the 1930s, 40s, maybe even before then, and it's failing. We've had regular closures of the beaches in the CBD and and of the waterways because the sewer network has failed. It's collapsed. The the sewers have, have reached the end of their serviceable life. And the economic burden of replacing those is ginormous. Yes, and I think that's really important. We see that in the U.S. too. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge and that we publicize these failures so that we understand the limitations of this gold standard system so that we don't lead other places down this path, which you know will take them to a very similar place in 50 years, 60 years. Yeah, without a doubt. 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, however long ago it happened in different places, there was the will to take out the loans needed to make the investment in these programs. But it's not guaranteed that when it's time to reinvest in the systems that you'll have that same will, the political will, or that you'll have the the money available at all. I'm reading between the lines what you're saying is that you don't need to rebuild what you've already had. When you get to the point that it needs to be replaced, there are alternative options And as a society, are we doing ourselves a disservice by not having at least the conversation about those options? I'm not advocating not to rebuild them. I do think that many of these systems just need a lot of reinvestment in order to bring them back up to standard. And also maybe when your wastewater treatment plant ages out, maybe it's time to rethink the technology there. And I think that they do that. It's not that they don't do that, but it's a conversation that isn't happening in the wider public, I think, to a great extent. How do we make that happen? I know Jack's done a very good job with the World Toilet Organization and his videos and things to to spread the message. But there seems to be, certainly on Twitter nowadays, there's a growing collective of sanitation-based academics, entrepreneurs, thinkers and designers. 
how do we gel those people together to to actually start to make some progress? I don't really know. This is sort of outside of my... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, big question. Hopefully it will happen. I think we just have to keep talking about it and I don't know. I wrote a book about it. Maybe that that's a contribution. <laughs> I guess everybody has a role to play, I think. And I think that this idea of saying, okay, whatever your interest is, there is a toilet angle in it. There is a contribution you can make. You don't have to be that interested in something that, that grosses you out or doesn't appeal to you. But if you're interested in climate change, there's an angle there for you. Yeah. If you're interested in... Um, social justice, there's an angle there for you. You don't have to learn about the intricacies of wastewater treatment. When you dive into the topic that's of interest to you or your profession, don't forget the toilets. Yeah, that's a really important message. And we've seen in the pandemic that the portable restroom operators that I'm in touch with are busier now than they've ever been. And all of a sudden, we, I was talking to Carleen Koss yeah. from the Portable Sanitation Association a couple of weeks ago, and she said, we're actually seeing the social status of the toilet industry lift because people are now realising in the pandemic that actually hand wash facilities and clean restroom facilities are really, really important, that you, you can't afford not to have those because you're preventing the spread of the disease. Yeah, I think so. I think we're seeing sort of a little bit of elevation of hygiene in general. Which has got to be a good thing. But we'll see if it's something that lasts. Well, hopefully, yeah. Will, will we will we you know, give it a year, everyone's vaccinated, the infection rate's gone down, will we just go back to the way we were before? hope not. Yeah, I hope not too. I think well, we'll have to see. Just have to keep keep talking about a better future. Admin-wise, how can people get hold of a copy of your book? Yeah, so the book is out in the U.S., so you can buy it uh, at any bookstore in the U.S. or on your at online booksellers in the U.S., um, and also the ebook is out in the U.S., and the audiobook is out in the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., what I've found is that you can usually get it from some online booksellers or from a bookstore. So if you have an international bookstore in your area, you can contact them and they can get you a hard copy. Unfortunately, outside of the US, you, you're unlikely to be able to get an ebook. So you have to get that hard copy. Here where I live in the Netherlands, you can get it on amazon.de or you can get it on bull.com, which is an online bookseller. So you can get it pretty easily from those sites and also from like English bookstores. You just have to be a little persistent. But I promise it's worth it. And your website? My website. (laughs) There's a lot of information on your website. Yeah, there's information on my website at Chelsea Wald, W-A-L-D, Chelsea like the football club, dot com. And I'm on Twitter at Chelsea Wald and on Instagram at Chelsea.Wald. I've not been able to read the full book, but I've read all of the reviews and I've watched the videos and I've ordered a copy that that I think will get here in, I don't know, a week, two weeks, three weeks time. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, it's kind of a pain, but I really appreciate your persistence in in trying to get that. Thank you. Well, I'm glad. And thank you so much for having me on. This was a fun conversation. It's been really good. And when I sat down with Marcel and we planned the second and third series, the aim was to broaden the spectrum away just from portable restrooms, but into the wider sanitation debate. And, you know, this is a real key moment for me in that, in that you've written a a book, which I think will become a classic of the, the whole movement. You know, thank you for taking time to talk with us. It's been really good. 
Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that interview with Chelsea, and I think I've got the first copy of the book to land in New Zealand. I can't wait to finish reading it. And as with all the guests that appear on the show, I've sent her a Get Flush mug. But this time, I've arranged for it to be personally delivered to The Hague by the CEO of Sanitrax International, Marcel Bicker, who lives in Amsterdam. Marcel sat in on our call and asked some really great questions. Unfortunately, his audio channel developed an echo which I couldn't remove, so wasn't able to add his contribution to the show. That aside, I'd like to thank both Chelsea and Marcel for helping me produce what I think is one of the best episodes we've released to date. And it's an important episode because it really helps us move beyond portable sanitation. OK, that's all we've got time for this week. Check the episode notes for a link to Chelsea's book and her website, as well as details of how to find the sanitation conversation on Clubhouse. Please remember to tell family, friends, colleagues, strangers and everybody else all about Get Flushed. And remember to follow the show on your podcast app to get every episode delivered direct to your device. And if you visit patreon.com slash getflushed, a modest monthly donation will get you early access to every episode and bonus material that's not available anywhere else. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed. 